Cambridge Minds with Trevor Dan on Cambridge 105. Welcome to this new season of Cambridge Minds. One guest per show this time, otherwise the same format. Some of the great thinkers and intellects, scientists, artists, entrepreneurs opening up about what's on their Cambridge Minds. And we'll ask them about their favourite shops, restaurants and walks in the Cambridge Questionnaire. In this opening programme, meet Dr Carolyn Crawford. She's the public astronomer at the University's Institute of Astronomy on Maddingley Road. She spends much of her time observing and thinking about what's going on in the farthest flung galaxies. But I went to visit her as she was preparing for her latest series of open evenings, where everyone's invited to take a look at the night sky. It's called the Institute of Astronomy, but you could imagine yourself in the gardens of a stately home. It's certainly a very beautiful autumn day. Carolyn, as we walk towards wherever it is you're taking me, what is a public astronomer? A public astronomer is really the representative of this research department in the university. So I talk about astronomy to really anybody who wants to hear about it. So it could be school children, could be astronomical societies, it could be women's institutes. So I'm kind of like a community liaison officer almost for the department. But I also organise all our outreach programmes. So, for example, our public open nights on the Wednesdays, our science festival activities, and really a whole myriad of different opportunities to engage the public with astronomy and what we do and why. So we're out here on what's sometimes called the West Cambridge campus just to be clear, we're not at the Mullard Observatory, are we, on Barton Road, where you can see those huge radio telescopes. That's a different job. Yeah, that's associated with the physics department and the radio astronomers. We've been out on West Cambridge since 1823. So we're the original observatories on Madeley Road. And sometimes you can glimpse the white domes of the buildings through the trees as you sort of head out of Cambridge towards the M11. So that's where we are. And what is the difference between what the two systems do? Is it, is it just a matter of, well, one's to do with radio waves and the other one's to do with actually looking at the stars? It's more historical. We're all astronomers and we, we talk to each other, we work on similar things. Just historically, the observatories here, which has grown into the Institute of Astronomy, we originally started as optical astronomers, so using telescopes that you use with the unaided eye, whereas the radio astronomers and the Cavendish, that grew out of a radio astronomy in the sort of 1950s and 1960s and the developments then. So it's just that kind of history of where different parts of astronomy grew. Of course, now we work on the same kind of objects. We both use radio and microwave and visible and some of us use x-rays and gamma rays and ultraviolet light. We use all kinds of light out there. And so it is much more of a communal effort than it sounds. So for most of us, when we think of astronomy, I think we think of, you know, the telescope through which we can see, oh, there's the moon. And if we're lucky, we can go, oh, there's, I don't know, the plough or that kind of thing. What depths of space are you looking into, Carolyn? Far further than you can see with the unaided eye and certainly far further than you can see with any of the telescopes we've got here on site. I mean, these are fairly, well, they're quite impressive to look through with the unaided eye, but compared to research telescopes, they're not really that powerful. The kind of things we study are halfway across the universe and some people are even looking at the origins of the universe, the very early universe, where you need the most powerful telescopes in the world to see them and different lights other than visible are probably the best way to investigate them. Talk to me about how one of those really long-distance telescopes works. I know we're going to go and see one of the smaller, older optical ones here, but if you're trying to look at what 
to me might be called infinity. Mm -hmm. What kind of gadget do you need? Well, if we're talking of a telescope that works in the visible wave band, okay, the, the, the one that we see with our eyes, the most important thing probably about any telescope is how wide it is. Now, if I, I'm going to take you to see a 12-inch telescope, which does not mean that it's 12 inches long, because that would be tiny. It means it's 12 inches wide. And basically, the wider the telescope, the more light it'll collect from your distant star, the brighter that distant star will appear. So if you really want to look at distant objects, you're talking about telescopes that use mirrors that could be sort of 8, 10 metres across, Astronomers even now designing and trying to work out how we can build next generation telescopes where your mirrors would be up to like sort of 39 metres across. Phenomenal size. I mean, it won't all just be one mirror. It'll all be kind of segmented to mimic one big mirror. But again, the wider the mirror, the wider the telescope, the more powerful and the further back you can see out into space and back in time. All my characters in this series say that knowledge is important for its own sense. But what is the value of astronomy? Why, beyond being able to say, oh, look, they're nice, why mm -hmm. do we need to know more about the stars? Well, there are a couple of ways you could look at this. There's a very abstract view that when you do astronomy, you're really studying physics in extreme circumstances. It could be extremes of time, distance, gravity, temperature, pressure, density, in ways that you can't replicate in the lab. Circumstances that are just way out of any, anything you could reproduce here on Earth. And that gives us a way to test the laws of physics, how they behave at these extremes. Now, this doesn't give an immediate dividend to society. It's what we call blue skies research. But what we learn gets embedded into physics and into developments and uh, industrial applications of physics along the line. There's a lot, of course, spin-offs that come from development of instruments for satellites, building telescopes, the computational work that we do. We, we're experts in huge data sets, analysing the, the computer systems. There are all those kind of possible commercial spin-offs. But two other ways of looking at it as well is astronomy is one of the areas that really draws young people into the sciences and the physical sciences. And it's seen as a way to get young people engaged, particularly in reading physics, maybe engineering, computing software, and perhaps draw them in the first place and give them a vehicle where they can learn all those skills. Now, they may not go on and become research astronomers, but they're highly sought after in the city, in the industry, in research physics. So we're producing some very competent graduates. And finally, you have to also accept there's a sort of cultural thing about astronomy. We are dealing with some of the most fundamental questions. You know, are we the only people in the universe? What's out there? Are there other Earth-like planets? Some of those, I think you just have to accept they are philosophical questions that people want answering. We're working towards those answers. And so there is that kind of cultural aspect of science, answering those really important questions. Shall we go and have a look at this telescope then? Yes. As, as we get there... Karen, what was your first relationship with astronomy? Were you, were you somebody who, you know, as a child went out in the back garden with the telescope? Well, I didn't have a telescope, but uh, exactly. I used to go out in the garden as a child. My father was an engineer, and so we're talking to the late 60s, early 70s. He was fascinated by satellites. He used to love to go out in the garden and just wait for a satellite to go across, because he was just marvelled at what we could do. And I got kind of bored waiting for the satellites. I was more interested in the stars and the patterns of the stars. And when I exhausted his knowledge of the constellations, I got a book out of the library. 
And I looked at the star maps and I started reading the rest of the book and just kind of got hooked very simply by the beauty of the night sky. Because in those days we were all fascinated, weren't we, by space travel. That was the thing that, uh, you know, men on the moon and, and the Apollo program and all that. When we stopped doing space exploration, did astronomy start to feel like it was a bit more academic and a, and a bit less part of sort of everyday culture? Well, I think you have to be careful here because there are two kinds of exploration. You're talking about the end of human exploration of space and then, the, the, you know, we've gone back to low Earth orbit and sort of gone back to square one and kind of doing it more slowly and properly. It's not that the exploration has ceased. Remember, we are exploring the solar system. We're just not sending humans out there, but we're doing so much with robots and these little spacecraft that are fairly autonomous that can do our science for us, either by flypaths or orbiting around planets or these really sophisticated rovers that we can land on the surface of Mars that can you know, crawl around and do our science for us. I heard somebody on the radio talking about possibly finding water on a Saturn moon or a Saturn ring and they were saying about how they might be able to fly through the plume I thought this was very exciting well we cannot we already do that there's a little moon around Saturn it's called Enceladus and it's got solid ice surface because if you think it's so far out from the sun the solid the the top of the the moon is exposed to space it's really cold and underneath that we think there's a liquid ocean but there are cracks in the ice, deep fissures, and there are these huge plumes that spray out into space. So you've got water vapour, and we have a mission called Cassini. It's been out at Saturn for the last 12 years, and you, it's been examining Saturn and its moons and its rings. But one of the things they can do is they can send, they have frequently sent it plunging through these plumes. And it's got experiments which can almost like sniff what's in the vapour, can detect the salts and the minerals, and can tell you that that water vapour's been in contact with the rock underneath. So there's a rocky core underneath that ocean. And more excitingly this week, there's news that it's not just Enceladus around Saturn, but also Europa, a very similar moon around Jupiter, appears to have the same plumes. May also have this kind of ocean underneath the ice. And that might mean there's life, probably not little green men, but there might be some bacteria or some little microbes of some sort. Oh, certainly, or little green dolphins, if you like. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that would be nice. So this building here, this looks Victorian to me. It's got a lovely dome on the top. What's this? Well, I'm taking you to the, the oldest telescope we have on site. This is called the Northumberland Telescope, which is named after the Duke of Northumberland. Just further along the path, we've got the old observatories building with its wonderful Doric columns and its portico. Oh, yeah. So that was built in 1823. And this telescope came along in 1838. It was a donation from the Duke of Northumberland who put forward the money for this telescope to be built. And it was, you know for a while, probably about 10 years, the largest telescope in the world of its kind, where it could sort of see all the sky and be movable. So this big dome then, which is currently closed, a metal dome, I guess that roof opens, is it? Yes, well, the original roof was wooden, and this is a roof we've had replaced fairly recently. But yes, it protects the telescope at the minute. It's completely closed to the sky. When we want to observe, we'll just open up a small slit and you can also move the dome round so you can observe different parts of the sky. Let's go in and have a look. Yes. Northumberland Telescope. Why did they build this outside of Cambridge? Do you know? I mean, was it because they didn't want light pollution? 
well, yes, even in the sort of late 18th century, the centre of Cambridge was not a great place to observe. They had telescopes sort of on the gatehouse at Trinity and the chapel in St John's College roof. But even then they had to appreciate that this was not your best observing conditions and that's why we were kind of moved out to West Cambridge because at the time this was a long way out of Cambridge and believe it or not for Cambridge this is up a hill, it's called Gravel Hill. <laughs> so it just gives a tiny little bit of an advantage. Yes, electric light has followed you out here regrettably, hasn't it? Yes, we've got the lights of the Maddingley Road and the M11 and the University Athletics Ground all pursuing us and now we've got <laughs> new West Cambridge so that's going to be uh, interesting from the light pollution point of view. Right, so what you might want to do is record the opening that I can open the dome. Yes, please, that would be terrific. This is really an extraordinary apparatus. Now, is this built, is this steel or iron, or that looks like a wooden column in the middle there? It's all Norwegian fir, so it's all wood. Crikey, and it must be, what, 30, it, 20 feet high? Oh, it's pretty good, 19 and a half feet long. Oh, That's not right, bad. so 12 inches wide, 19 and a half feet long and a beautiful sort of brass eyepiece at the end and it's what you've got is you've got this long telescope and it's held within a sort of network of wooden pillars that can um well a framework more that sort of encases the telescope and carries it around if you kind of turn it around the night sky well as it is a nice day let's open the roof certainly <laughs> let's get some sunshine in karen reaches for large ropes on both sides of the door. You have to be very strong to be an astronomer. Whoa. Almost feels like being on board ship. Yes, that sort of rumbling sound. And what I'll there's also the do, sky. there's the sky. Now, of course, we don't open up the whole dome. We just open a small slit in the dome. Mm. So the, if you want to observe different parts of the sky, you need to rotate the whole dome. So what I'll just show you now is how I can rotate the dome. Now, obviously, modern telescopes, you just press a button. Yeah. Or, in fact, it's keyed to track the, where the telescope is looking in the sky. Here, we've got pulleys and ropes. So I'm just going to heave <laughs> on a rope and move the whole dome around. Oh, and you really are heaving, like a bell ringer. You're j jumping oh, yes. up. Oh, look at this, isn't it? The whole top of the building is moving around. Slightly disconcerting, isn't it? Um, wow. You know, some modern telescopes, the whole building moves around the telescope. So you'll go in at the beginning of the night on one, you know, uh, maybe the entrance is by the car park, and in the morning you'll emerge and you're facing the completely different side of the mountain. You're going, okay, what's happened? It's just a bit disorienting. So what I'm looking at here at the bottom of the long pillar, as you said, it's uh, the, the eyepiece is like a bottom of a microscope almost, and I'm looking at what... Oh, and you're moving it out of the way, and there, there's some kind of bed. Are we meant to go and lie on that and look? <laughs> well, only if you're observing straight overhead. You've got the original observing chair here. Because this is such an old telescope, it's one where the astronomers would look through it with their unaided eye. And that's easy if the eyepiece is at, you know, at eye height, but if you're observing quite low down, you might need to be, you know higher up and so we've got an observing chair which can rack up and follow the telescope up so, you so can, it can be you can lie flat you or lie you can flat. sit like a sort of tennis yeah. umpire halfway up that's right it's sort of got a ladder and um, you've you've got this chair which you perch on so wherever you're looking in the sky however low or however high you're accommodated in i would say they're still not very comfortable but a better <laughs> observing position and you commented about the end, um, the eyepiece looking like the end of a microscope. Well, really, it's not dissimilar. This is more or less a magnifying glass because the 
lens at the far end of the telescope, 12 inches wide, it collects more light than you can see with your unaided eye. That makes the distant star brighter. The light travels all the way down the tube, and I could put my eye at the end of the tube here, and I'd see a much brighter star, but it would still be tiny. So this end of the telescope is really just makes that image bigger. It's kind of like a magnifying glass, and it's not dissimilar from, as you say, what you would do at the end of a microscope. So when people come to your public events on Wednesdays, and I know they start again soon... On the 5th of October. Do you let them have a go on this? Of course, only if it's clear. OK, well, let's assume it's clear and it's, I don't know, 8 o'clock at night. What am I likely to see? Well, it depends on the time of year and it depends on the weather conditions. But if you come along... I'll just say, actually, the observing evenings begin about seven. We have like a half-hour talk about some aspect of astronomy that starts at quarter past seven. We, we do that to, quite bluntly, keep everyone out of the way while we set up the telescopes outside. But as soon as that's over, and if it's clear, we come outside, and you can look through this telescope. There's another Victorian telescope, uh, an eight-inch telescope just up the path. We've got a brand-new 16-inch telescope. And we run these evenings also with the... Cambridge Amateur Astronomical Association who put a fantastic floor show on with a commentary and projected images and I also have students out with smaller telescopes and laser pointers showing people around the sky so there's a lot more to it than looking through this one telescope but you can look through this telescope and it depends what is visible you maybe would see a beautiful double star where the two there's one very golden star and one very greeny star maybe if there's a planet up of course don't think there's going to be one very accessible in the near future. But if Jupiter was up, we'd show you Jupiter, and you could see the bands on Jupiter. You could see the four big moons of Jupiter very clearly through here. So it just depends really on the quality of the night and what's available. What's the gender balance in astronomy? I mean, are, are you rare because you're an important and influential female astronomer? I mean, are they mostly men? It is mostly men. There are more women, certainly many more younger women. And one thing I will say is astronomy is thought to be a lot better than a lot of the other physical sciences in terms of the representation of women. And it is one where it is a science where there is a history of eminent women astronomers, going right back to Caroline Herschel, the sister of Sir William Herschel to discover Uranus, who is eminent astronomer in her own right, discovering comets. There has been this continued history of women who have contributed to astronomy. Nowadays, there are more and more young women coming in. It's still a difficult career choice for anyone, especially if you have a young family, because part of the, the way that you are deemed to do your career is that you move around. You get experience in different institutions, and that can be a struggle sometimes. But I think there are a lot of changes going on that hopefully make the whole of astronomy much more inclusive as a profession, and you know, everybody's working to try and make it so. So universities are about teaching and about public engagement and all those good things, but they're also about learning, and you can't be an academic in a position like yours without actually studying something. So what's on your mind at the moment? What are you thinking about? I am most interested in the most massive galaxies in the universe, and these are ones that tend to sit right at the centre of clusters of galaxies. So. Some galaxies live on their own. Some live along with hundreds or thousands of others, all tied together by gravity to form what's known as a cluster. And, and a galaxy is like our solar system, is it? Or oh, is it? No, 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 no. Our solar system, system is, is the sun and the planets and dwarf planets and comets and everything. Our sun is one of 100,000 million stars which make up our galaxy, which is the Milky Way. 
So if you think of the Milky Way, that's a galaxy, and that's only one of about 120 billion out there. So I look at ones that are right at the center of these clusters, and they're the largest, and they've got some really interesting things going on around them. They tend to have the largest black holes at the center. There's all kinds of effects from being in this cluster. It doesn't just mean they're in a crowded environment. They're sort of sitting in a great big lake of gas that's at millions of degrees. How does that affect the galaxy? How does the galaxy affect the gas? All that kind of interplay between the black hole, the galaxy, and then its immediate surroundings, I find fascinating. And I'm very much an observer. I like to deal with data. There's always science, you know, maths in science. There's always computing. But you can work on very abstract theory, you know, equations and simulations, and you can also go and gather data from telescopes and satellites, and I'm that kind, I'm the latter kind of astronomer. Because I went to see David Tong for the first series of, uh, of these programmes, and it, his life seemed to be all about whiteboards and black writing and very dense formulae and popping off to CERN every now and again. It was a kind of deep maths he was doing. Yes, and a lot of astronomy is deep maths, but it... It just varies according to what you're working on, and there are some people that completely theory, some people who are completely observational collecting data, and then those who work on both. And the important thing is that you have both kinds of science because it's always a dialogue. The theoretician producing a prediction that, the, that challenges the observer, producing a, an observation that challenges people's theories. It's that dialogue that's going on all the time. We're challenging each other, and you work together to hopefully come to one coherent explanation. One thing that interests me about people like yourself who spend a long time thinking about the infinite, thinking about galaxies millions of miles away, how easy is it to just deal with <laughs> ordinary life, you know, getting in the car, getting in that traffic jam, waiting for the guy to bring the new cooker around, you know, waiting in for the Tesco delivery. Is there, a, is there a sense in which you find yourself disappearing from ordinary life because you're studying the infinite? Well, you might say that just to my colleagues. <laughs> Probably best not to quote me on that. Uh, yeah, it's all part and parcel of everyday life. You can't stop and think too closely about the infinities all the time. Most astronomers will take them as red and not let them bother them, but they will trip you up every so often. You'll just suddenly remember what it is you're working on. But you have, to, you have to be rooted in everyday life. However, you will be thinking and mulling about things at the back of your mind all the time. It's often said of scientists, probably great artists as well, often they'll get their greatest inspiration when they're not at the computer when they're not at their desk, when they're not teaching their students. It'll be when they're on the walk home, or in Cambridge, probably the cycle ride home, or when you're doing that Sunday morning stroll through what passes for hills around Cambridge. It's kind of that moment where you are, your mind never lets go of a problem. It's turning it over, even if it's just in your subconscious. And those, that probably means that we never completely disengage. The other thing I'm bound to ask you about, Carolyn, I'm sure you're fed up with this, is the difference between astronomy and astrology. I wonder, do people like you pick up a paper or get on the web and actually think, oh, I wonder how, how I'm going to get on because I'm a Sagittarius today? Does that have any meaning at all? Well, certainly, 
I would say not to any astronomers that I know. <laughs> it, it, there's, there's complete mismatch. Astrology is nothing to do with hard science, with facts, with astronomy. Obviously, it brings a lot of people some comfort, but I have yet to meet any astrophysicist who believes there's anything in it. And what about religion and astronomy? I mean, they've, they've been a battleground at times, haven't they, in, in centuries gone by. Can you be a religious believer and still look at the stars and know, you know what you know about them? There are many astronomers for whom it's not incompatible at all. They will see God in the rules of physics. Likewise, there are many astronomers who are complete atheists who see the complete mismatch. It's all completely a personal viewpoint. That's very interesting. Now, Carolyn, we have to do the Cambridge questionnaire. I'm going to ask you three questions about Cambridge. You're not obliged to answer them, mm -hmm. but we'd be delighted if you did. We've had some fascinating answers to these questions uh, since we started this series. I'm going to ask you, you live in, in Cambridge, Yes, do you? I live in the city. Okay, so do you have a favorite place you go and eat? Well, I'm a vegetarian. So I must admit, I'm a, you're in a good place for that, though, aren't you? Excellent <laughs> place, and so I do tend to gravitate toward places like the Rainbow Cafe in Kings Parade, just because you don't even have to think about choosing something in the menu. So that's quite a favourite of mine. Don't get there enough, though. Well, we should look out for you there. What about a favourite shop? Where do you like to go and browse? Well, it does sound like I spend all of my life in Kings Parade, which isn't <laughs> true. But I, even though I'm a scientist, I have a great passion for arts, and I'm always interested in the arts. So I quite like just browsing Primavera. Again? King's Parade, you know, I like Beautiful. looking at the, the glassware, the jewellery, the, the fabrics, and just, yeah, just getting inspiration from that. And the final one, my favourite really, and you mentioned something about hills, which suggests to me that you'd quite like walking. Do you have a favourite walk in Cambridge? I have a number of favourite walks in Cambridge, but I do like the Roman Road around the back of Wandlebury. So you go up to the Gogma Gogs, go to Wanderbury, and then go past Wanderbury, and then along the Roman Road, and just you get some fabulous views from up there. And I just find it very peaceful, and I like it. But there are a lot of good walks around Cambridge if you know how to find them, <laughs> how to negotiate your way around all the fields and the ditches. But uh, there, are, and also around Barrington, there are some fabulous walks, especially ones that take you up around the back of the quarry. And recently, just over the summer, I was walking up there. And it was quite a windy day. And you have the buzzards, which have been swept up. And they're just sort of circling on the wind. And because they're, you know, as far as they're concerned, they're right at the top of this quarry. But because you're walking around the back of the quarry, they're only like a few feet above your head. And you just get this fabulous view of them. And that was, that was very special. So you can find poetry in daylight as well as nighttime. Yes. Yeah, of course you can. <laughs> Karen, thank you so much for being our Cambridge Mind this yeah. week. Absolutely fascinating just remind us, because it is this week, when and where should we be on a Wednesday? Well, yes, Wednesday nights from 7 o'clock, or you can always get here a bit earlier, at the Institute of Astronomy, that's out along Maddingley Road. Got a talk, got public observing, the whole thing goes on till about 9 o'clock, and they're on every Wednesday from start of October through to the end of March. So Fantastic. You're very welcome to just drop in and come along. We wish you well with those, Caroline Crawford. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're very welcome. Cambridge Minds is a TDC production for Cambridge 105. Our thanks to Caroline Crawford. I'm Trevor Dan. Join me next time.